running around, catching up all that light, in moonlight, black boys look blue. Well, I'm no Mahershala Ali, but since I am half Cuban, hopefully I didn't completely butcher that one. Welcome to the Crooked Table Podcast, this is Rob, and on this episode we're going to be focusing on Moonlight. Um, those of you who may have, may or may not have listened to last week's episode, I debuted a new format wherein I'm really kind of trying trying to test a new approach that focuses on a single film and kind of goes into it more in depth, rather than just breeze through a recent release and just kind of share my general thoughts and, and be like, oh, it was good, it wasn't good, and move on to another uh, to another release. I'm opting to sort of focus in on one particular film that's made an impact, either the box office or culturally or, or what have you, and um, kind of go a little more in-depth and break down, uh, break it down, um, the different elements of the film and why it's, it's impactful and all that. Uh, so before we get to Moonlight, which you may have heard of if you're a cinephile, uh, I wanted to share a little bit of thoughts on Kong Skull Island, which was the uh, past weekend's, as I'm recording this, the past weekend's um, box office uh, king, appropriately enough. And so this is the second movie in Warner Brothers and Legendary Pictures' Monsterverse following 2014's Godzilla. And to be perfectly frank, I wasn't really a fan of that film. Um, the, the whole giant monster thing has been very hit and miss for me, uh, personally, just over the years. I, d- I do like things like Cloverfield, and I do I do enjoy uh, Pacific Rim. But in general, I'm not the type to just be like, oh, it's a monster movie, I, I have to see it. It's, it's Of course I want to see Kong and Godzilla because they're such iconic characters, but it's not something that's particularly close to me, or that... Um, that I have a kind of a natural proclivity to, regardless of quality. Like, it's not something that, like, for example, the Power Rangers movie that's coming out, I grew up with those the, those characters, I grew up with that, that TV show, as cheesy as it is, um, so of course I'm going to be already sort of, kind of, in the bag for a new interpretation of it. I don't feel like that with Kong or Godzilla. Um, so it's without, and you know, it shouldn't really surprise that this movie didn't really work for me either. This is Jordan Voigt Roberts' uh, directorial effort, kind of rebooting the Kong mythos. Um, unlike the Peter Jackson 2005 movie, this is not a straight-up remake of the 1933 classic, as has been done a couple times. Uh, this is more kind of reinventing that character into an ongoing franchise. Of course, setting the stage for the 2020 release of Godzilla vs. Kong: Dawn of <laughs> Monsters, or whatever they end up calling the uh, the full the full title, you you just know it's going to have one of those those like uh, hyping it up uh, subtitles: Godzilla v Kong, ready to rumble, or Godzilla v Kong, let them fight, or something of that nature. So, uh, as far as the the plot in Kong Skull Island, the story is pretty boilerplate. It's uh, basically a group of a motley group of of, uh, of individuals put together an expedition to explore the recently discovered island that you know appears in the title of the film, but it's really filled with bland, dull characters played by a lot of charming, talented actors. You have Tom Hiddleston as the badass, who's a badass because they tell us he's a, a badass. He doesn't really do much badass except for maybe one moment that's kind of ridiculous and over the top. And comes out of nowhere where he just basically he kind of has that look on his face like, I got this. And has his little hero moment that feels completely false with everything we've seen about him so far. Um, and Oscar winner Brie Larson, who's a photographer, uh, anti-war photographer, as she so explicitly states throughout the film. And uh, shows up to take pictures of things. John Goodman is sort of the the crackpot, and using air quotes for that, who... Um, who believes that there's something on this island worth exploring and worth, you know, bringing back proof to uh, to civilization and all of that. And Sam Jackson as this as this uh, military colonel who 
this was probably one of the only uh, one of the only interesting angles that the film has. It's set in the early '70s, so it's the very tail end of the Vietnam War, and because of that, it lends it really tries to be sort of apocalypse now, as a lot of critics are also pointing out. Uh, the apocalypse now of giant monster movies, if that makes any sense, which I, I don't, I'm not still, I'm after seeing the film, still not entirely convinced that it does. Uh, but he is basically a military colonel who has, you know, lost the war or is dissatisfied with the way it ended and sees an opportunity in, uh, in Kong to sort of pursue a new battle and find a renewed sense of purpose. And that was sort of an interesting angle to take. But it doesn't 100% pan out uh, in a satisfying way. And Jackson's performance is is uh, hamming it up in a way that the rest of the movie doesn't really follow through on. The rest of the movie does feel like it is trying to take the mythos a lot more seriously. With the exception of Jackson and John C. Riley, who, despite being a questionable part of the marketing to a lot of people beforehand actually is one of the most entertaining parts of the film. He brings a real um, a real sense of humor to the film and, and, and really the only life to the uh, all the effects on screen kind of injecting humor and heart and and uh, I don't know vitality to something that for the most part feels like a kind of check all boxes Hollywood blockbuster. Uh, the monster effects, you know, they're fun for what they are, and, you know, fans of Go- uh, Godzilla and Kong movies and just want to see King Kong kind of wreak havoc on a bunch of monsters will probably have a lot of f- fun with this one. And, uh, I mean, as far as that, there is there are plenty standout moments to enjoy, but for me, it's hard to care about any of that without the framework of an interesting story, compelling characters, and this film really does lack a great deal of those ingredients, sort of just focusing on, oh, you want Kong, here's Kong, and yeah, yeah there's a bunch of people, but you know, none of, half of them aren't going to really make it through this, and the other half you're not really going to care about, so we'll just see how this goes. Uh, there's even a post-credit scene that uh, that teases the the eventual mashup of Godzilla and Kong uh, <laughs> in, in true keeping with uh, the Marvel Cinematic Universe effect on the industry as a whole. But for me, I mean, I won't be holding my breath for that to be that much fun. I'll probably still check it out just because it's a student of pop culture. So I will feel like I need to, to see that and sort of sort of stay uh, up to date on the MonsterVerse. If for no other reason, just so I can have an educated opinion on it. But this wasn't a film that I really had that much of a good time with. I ended up going three out of five stars for this one. Um, if you're looking for something disposable with with some fun action scenes, then you probably enjoy Kong Skull Island. But if you're looking for anything more than just throwaway entertainment, uh, I mean, for me, it it didn't really deliver uh, on that front at all. Uh, so that's that's Kong Skull Island on that front. So just to go into the lead up to my discussion of Moonlight. Uh, as I mentioned up front, there is a new format here. We're going to be breaking down the hype, the story, the cast, the production, and then the verdict of Moonlight. Uh, we did a, I did a similar approach to Logan last week. As you know, that was the X-Men film that has lit the superhero genre on fire once again. Uh, but sort of taking it in a different direction and, um, you know, trying to reinvent the wheel so to speak, as far as what constitutes a superhero film and what could be done on screen, not only within that genre, but within the X-Men franchise as a whole, which in the last couple of years has really tried to find itself between Days of Future Past and Deadpool and then Apocalypse. It's, it's in an interesting state of flux wherein it appears like that they're, it's hitting a creative renaissance, but not without some stumbling blocks along the way. Uh, so I, you can listen to my episode from last week on Logan for some more thoughts on uh, that franchise. But safe to say that Logan's probably likely to be one of my favorite 2017 films. And that serves as a perfect segue into my discussion of Moonlight, which was actually one of my favorite films of 2016. So without further ado, let's delve into a little bit more discussion on Barry Jenkins' new film, Moonlight. Thank you. 
that was a bit of the score for Moonlight. That's a track titled The Middle of the World by composer Nicholas Bertel. And we'll get into the score of the film a little bit more later. But just to start off with Moonlight, let's talk about the hype. So, of course, I had heard about this movie months before I actually got a chance to see it. Uh, it played at a lot of festivals and had a lot of positive buzz coming out of that. Critics were praising it right out the gate. And a lot of the uh, Oscar pundits were sort of earmarking it to be one of those films that could very well be a major awards contender in the year ahead. Um, it's director Barry Jenkins' follow-up to 2008's Medicine for Melancholy, which is actually streaming on Netflix if you do want to check that out. So finally, in the lead-up to the Oscars and awards season in general, I did get a chance to see Moonlight in theaters a couple months back, but it's one of those things where you hear so much hype about a film up front that you really need to sort of marinate and... Uh, form form a, a, a more elaborate opinion about it before you sort of before you lay out exactly your you know your critical response to it and that was the case with moonlight when i first saw it i was uh you know initially impressed with a lot of the elements of the film but having recently picked it up on blu-ray rewatched it i'm actually working my way through the special features now um it, it really has the impact and the artistry of what Jenkins is trying to do here has begun to sink in a bit more um, just because I feel like when I went to see it it was one of those movies that you see and, and you sort of you can, you have uh, already a, a sense of anticipation and okay this is the movie everybody's talking about alright I better deliver and because of that it's really hard for any film to measure up so it's, it's it, it takes time to sort of step back from the conversation surrounding the film and look at it as a piece of art in and of itself. So going into the Oscars, because there was such uh, such discussion surrounding Moonlight, there was a sort of animosity that had built up between the movie and La La Land. Um, you can actually hear my thoughts on La La Land in a couple episodes back, where I did my in-depth reaction to that. And as far as you know, as far as fans and critics were really pitting those two movies against each other. Which in a way makes sense because La La Land does represent sort of a lighter, as much as that film is bittersweet, sort of a lighter sense of escapism. Being like, well the movies are a magical place where you can get away from things and where they can comment on real life but also sort of take you out of it. And there's a lot of uh, dreamlike sequences in that film from director Damien Chazelle that, uh, that does sort of um, represent the, the heightened sense of reality that movies can portray, whereas Moonlight, which was, is much more of a somber reflection of modern-day identity politics. Of course, that rivalry uh, wasn't made a whole lot better with the whole Best Picture snafu. I mean, as soon as that happened, I really wanted to share my thoughts on it, but again, I was like, well, I wanna, if I'm going to do that, I want to talk more about Moonlight in general, especially since it did end up be, being one of my favorite films of last year. But I remember watching the Oscars, and of course, I was rooting for Moonlight uh, over La La Land, even though, to me, they're both kind of comparable as far as their artistic achievement and as far as, um, you know, production value and that kind of thing. Um, but I feel like Best Picture should be more than... Should, should make more of a statement, and I feel like the statement that Moonlight made as far as, you know, um, what it has to say about about minority groups, about LGBT, about, you know, African-American community, about um, diversity and and breaking boundaries and, and uh, pushing forward progress and that kind of thing. I feel like that was a much stronger message to send um, with the Academy, uh, with the Academy Award for Best Picture than La La Land, which is, which is a, a great movie, but is really much more of a throwback. I feel like La La Land was a throwback to an earlier era of Hollywood history, and I feel like Moonlight is sort of forging a path to, you know, some of the some of the uh, up and coming creative voices and untold stories that we still have to tap into. So, with that in mind, you know, when that Best Picture uh, was announced and La La Land was sort of was sort of assumed to be the favorite going in because it had 14 nominations because it had received uh, such wide critical praise, because it was sort of seesawing with hidden figures as the highest grossing of the Best Picture nominees. Um, that was... Witnessing that firsthand, watching it that night when it happened, was kind of insane. 
um, because I was <laughs> I was in mid-tweet, in fact, when it happened, and saying, oh, you know, as much as it would have been nice to see Moonlight win, you know, it's hard to begrudge La La Land, and then it was like, and then as soon as I was about to finish, the uh, <laughs> the producers of La La Land were like, oh, there's been a mistake. Moonlight won Best Picture. This is not a joke. And there was it was funny how how many times they had to sort of protest, like, no, no, Moonlight won Best Picture, holding up the envelope to the camera to be like, no, we're serious. Look, seriously, here it is. It's not a conspiracy thing. It's not. It's not. You know, we're not just saying, oh, we share this with you, Moonlight, or anything. They literally won. Uh, and then learning in the days afterwards of the circumstances that led to that, where was pretty interesting, and it was kind of fun to. Uh, as unfortunate as that was for both the teams behind Moonlight and La La Land to witness a bit of Oscar hi- history happening right there. So I-, I just had to finish my tweet, but like, wait, wait, what just happened? Um, as it was happening. So when it was all over, Moonlight ended up walking away with three Oscar wins for uh, Best Supporting Actor for Mahershala Ali, who's one of his most memorable lines I quoted at the top of the episode for Best Adapted Screenplay by Barry Jenkins and uh, for Best Picture. And it was even more important that it's victory over La La Land and the other seven nominees because of what it represented. I mean, this is a $1.5 million little indie drama that broke boundaries, defied the odds, and pretty much every step of the way. It was basically a, a little film that could in a lot of ways. Uh, it's the first Best Picture winner with a black director, with an all-black cast, uh, with heavy LGBTQ um, themes and stories being told, and with all the with all the narrative surrounding the film, the big question still remains: you know, does it live up to all of that? And what are my thoughts on on the content of the film, separating it from the obviously, you know, I like the film because I'm talking about it, and I've already sort of let that spill. But what in detail about this film do I feel like works so much, uh, aside from the hype and all of the the insanity leading up to its surprising Best Picture win? So going into the story, does the film live up to that? Yes and no. Um, how you, I, in my opinion, how you react to Moonlight really depends on your own taste in cinema and perhaps even your own way of seeing the world. It's it's quiet and, and contemplative, whereas other more mainstream dramas really feature a broad showcase of emotion or rely on melodrama to carry it through. Uh, there's no big emotional breakdown. I mean, there are a couple here, but there's not like a big Oscar-winning um, moment where people are like crying, bursting into tears, or or um, you know screaming at other characters. Or there's no even some of the, some of the other performances. Some of the other Oscar-winning performances this year. Viola Davis has her, like, snot tears going on in Fences. Or uh, Casey Affleck has a few moments in uh, in Manchester by the Sea that, even though that performance is mostly understated, or Emma Stone and her big audition moment. There's no, like, um, emotional outpouring happening in this film. It, d- it doesn't really do any of that. It's It knows its scope, and it sticks to it very closely, um, focusing on a main character who is really... Uh, really just as quiet and introspective as the the tone of the film itself. And, and the artistry, the style in which it was made, really reflects the main character's mindset in a lot of ways. So the stories by Jenkins himself is based on the unproduced play by Terrell Alvin McCraney. And from what I understand, it, the, the story, which is set in Miami, uh, basically is sort of an amalgam of Jenkins and McCraney's upbringings. Um, they both had mothers who dealt with drug addiction. They both grew up in this um, in this neighborhood in sort of the urban jungle of Miami where it's set. But for the purposes of the film, and uh, I, should, I should, you know, give you guys a spoiler warning here. I will be talking a little more in detail on some of the stuff going forward. So spoiler warning ahead. If you haven't seen Moonlight, I highly recommend checking it out. Um, the, the film essentially follows a young African-American boy named Chiron, struggling with identity amidst the uh, the life that he lives in Miami, living with his mom, who, as I mentioned, is addicted to drugs. I believe it's heroin in the film. And it has a very, very uh, distinct structure in that it's broken down essentially into, a tr- essentially into a trilogy of short films. We have different actors playing Chiron at three different key periods of his life. And the looming question that Chiron and Moonlight itself is concerned with is that of identity. This is reflected in everything from its segment titles 
which are named Little, Chiron, and Black, um, in that order, focusing on the different names that the main character sort of ha uh, um, takes on or has attributed to him, as well as in the dialogue in which characters like Ali's Juan or Andre Holland's Kevin, both of which I'll get into in more depth later, directly ask Chiron who he is and tell him how he can decide, only he can decide who he is, and has to sort of find his place in the world. And this is, this is a, a boy, later a man, who's struggling with sexuality, struggling, struggling with, you know, being a minority in this world, and, and trying to define his own sense of masculinity and what that means for him. And so we see him through a number of pivotal moments, simple things like going for a swim or a casual visit to the beach that have a huge impact on his emotional journey going forward. In a lot of ways, Moonlight sort of searches for the profound in the mundane in the same way that Richard Linklater's Boyhood tries to do. Um, from, for me, that, that film didn't really, didn't really uh, hit home in the way that it did for some people. I know that also ended up winning, I believe, a screenplay uh, award and as well as supporting actress for Patricia Arquette. That film didn't really work for me just because it, it, it felt like more of a felt like it got more caught up in the gimmick of oh we shot this movie over 12 years than really staying focused on a um, thematic through line that carried throughout the main character's life. This one is all from Chiron's perspective all the while he's trying to differentiate who he is who the world wants him to be and that's as much as the film focuses on a, uh, a black gay boy trying to find his way in the world, that's a universal story that everyone can relate to. And, you know, we've all felt like outsiders. We've all had to sort of figure out through our adolescence into adulthood who we are, who we want to be, and, you know, kind of uh, overcome the pressures that our family, our friends, the society around us, what they want us to be, and, and either balance out that with what, who we are inside or to give ourselves over to what we're expected to become rather than and deny the, the desires of our own heart, essentially. That theme is elegantly weaved into every fiber of the writing here. Jenkins and McCraney's work is well-deserved with the Oscar win, as I mentioned, for your best adapted screenplay. Unlike La La Land, the script here is a bona fide winner from top to bottom. And it really is the foundation. I mean, it's the foundation of any film, but it really is the foundation on which the success of the rest of the film really builds upon. So moving on into the cast. So in keeping with its small budget, Moonlight does keep its cast pretty tight throughout. I mean, there's basically, I'd say probably five main characters that that have, well, there's a few characters here and there that, that play pivotal roles. But for, my, for our purposes here, we're going to uh, set aside um, characters like Terrell or Teresa and basically focus on uh, the two main characters being Chiron and Kevin, as well as the two Oscar-nominated performances by Mahershala Ali and Naomi Harris. So it's it's one of the Moonlight is one of the ex ultimate examples of how size doesn't matter. You take a, you focus on really two main characters, or even really one central character, and then the three biggest players in his life, and sort of build it out from there. This is not a huge ensemble uh, as far as characters are concerned. Although its cast is sort of uh, expanded out by the fact that you have three actors playing Chiron and three actors playing Kevin over the course of the film. So as, let's talk about Chiron first. Alex Hibbert, Ashton Sanders, Travante Rhodes play him throughout the three different segments as an 11-year-old boy, as a 17-year-old boy, and then as a 25-year-old man. And they really deliver incredibly powerful and detailed work as Chiron throughout the film. All three of these actors are tasked with conveying so much with so little dialogue to work with. I mean, <clears throat> from early on, especially with Alex Hibbert, Chiron is, is very passive and uh, reactionary to the world around him. You sort of see him observing the people, uh, the people he encounters with, uh, with a lot of skepticism and, and sort of trying to piece together how, how the world works and, um, it makes a lot of sense when you get to the second and third parts of the story why he is developed into the person he's become and he's becoming as it goes along. Uh, so all the emotions for the three actors, but especially Hibbert, is really all there on their faces. They, they track Chiron from a sense of quiet innocence 
to later when he's developed sort of a hard-edged exterior as the, uh, you know, with the nickname Black in the third segment. And they imbue this role with such a sense of inner conflict, pain, and, and turmoil that rarely makes it to the surface. It's really all in the eyes. And the way Chiron looks or doesn't look at things, the way he, he gazes into someone's eyes or sort of looks away sheepishly or repeated phrases like something like that or, or just the way he, he, um, his speech pattern carries throughout the three performances is really intricate and well-executed. Uh, well um, you really do believe that these three actors are playing the same man. There's a certain vulnerability that's ever-present, and it really shines through in Chiron's tenderest moments. I mean, one moment that really stood out to me was in Sanders' performance in the middle section of the film, as right after he had this brief moment of connection with Kevin, and then has that bond sort of shredded apart by a school bully. Um, of course, I'm talking of the pivotal scene when Kevin is goaded by Terrell to... Uh, to punch out Chiron in the, the game of knock down, stay down. And, and uh, you, you could see on Chiron's face the sort of um, the seeds for the rebellion that will happen later on in the third storyline. I mean, he glances up at Kevin just as he is about to, pu- to pummel him. And, and it's really heartbreaking. It's a, it's a, it's a very poignant moment. You can see the, he- the hesitance in Kevin's eyes as he's sort of trying to balance uh, his feelings for his friend, as well as the pressure, the peer pressure from Terrell and having to keep his, uh, keep his rep intact and, and uh, forsake his, his own, his own emotions. So to keep up, um, to, to keep up with the veneer of who he feels he's supposed to be. And this is something that Kevin mentions later on. And you really see that on Sanders' performance, uh, in Sanders' performance in that scene, and then immediately after when he breaks down to the principal, and then finally fights back against Terrell just as he's taken away by the by the police and put into juvie, the way that feeds into who he becomes in the third part of the storyline, I thought was really genius, and um, he because he undergoes quite a transformation between that second and third storyline, and I thought it was it was handled really well. Um, that moment uh, right after there is, is such a turning point for Chiron and and uh, just in, in, a, in a triple header, header performance that pretty much works for me across the board. I mean, there's not a false note in, in any of those actors' performances in my eyes. I felt like that was probably one of the most, uh, one of the subtlest moments of the film and really goes to show how Chiron is, is so brilliantly realized on screen. So going into Jaden Piner, Jarrell Jerome, and Andre Holland, who play Kevin, just like Chiron, likewise, the role of Kevin is tracked throughout the film as Chiron's friend-turned-love interest plays an increasingly vital role in his life. He's sort of the foil for, for Chiron in that they both sort of struggle with defining their own masculinity. Kevin's clearly a step or ten ahead of Chiron in that he uh, he kind of has a handle on how he's reacting to that 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 struggle of who he is and who the world wants him to be, especially by the last segment. Uh, we don't get as much of a look at his personal life since the film is so closely focused on Chiron, but it, but it's clear that he has a far closer connection to Chiron than he seems, even he seems to have wanted to admit. Um, you know, if I had to go with a VIP on Kevin, the clear winner for me is Andre Holland. Uh, Piner and Jerome are really strong work, but I mean, Pine, Piner has, or Pinier, I'm not really sure how to pronounce that, um, he has basically one scene, one extended scene, uh, well, a couple scenes, I guess. There's a couple big scenes with him. Uh, when Chiron walks in and, and catches all the boys sort of comparing their penises, which is sort of a, again, kind of a universal thing that seems like a lot of a lot of young boys would go through, uh, sort of being curious about their bodies and comparing to others and sort of sets the stage for uh, Chiron and Kevin both seeing themselves uh, trying to find where they fit amongst their contemporaries and I thought that was handled really well and Jerome having this sort of sense of bravado in his performance as Kevin that is basically deconstructed by the time we get to Holland's performance but Andre Holland really brought such charm and sensitivity to the third segment really sort of um, uh, more so than ever kind of emerging as a a mentor to Chiron in in his quest for um, self-identity and his interactions with Chiron are, carry such a hard-earned confidence and strength 
but he still manages to essentially melt on screen. Uh, especially for me, one of the moments for Andre Holland's Kevin that stood out to me is when he starts to play that song, Hello Stranger by Barbara Lewis, is the song that reminded him of Chiron in the first place. You can see that, that sense of him putting himself out there, that vulnerability that that uh, he didn't just call Chiron there because they're such good friends. They're, he does have a deeper feelings for him. And I feel like when, that's, when that song plays and you can sort of see his eyes drop and his hand go to the back of his neck and he's kind of worried about how Chiron's going to react because this is a man he hasn't seen in 10 years and who he essentially betrayed in probably the cruelest way uh, at the end of the second storyline. You can really see that depth and that... Um, that the connection that these two characters once shared is still very much alive in in both of them. And you get the similar sense from Trevante Rhodes when he gets the phone call from Kevin. But I felt like that moment when he starts to play that song uh, really kind of reveals, in a lot of ways, who Kevin really is inside and how he's had to come to terms with his life over the years. And uh, it's just really, truly beautiful work from uh, from Andre Holland there. So moving into Mahershala Ali, of course, Oscar winner for his role as Juan. He does get limited screen time because he is basically in just the first storyline, uh, focusing on young Chiron as played by Alex Hibbert, but he definitely makes the most of it. I mean, despite only appearing in, in maybe 30 minutes of the film, uh, Ali looms large over the rest of the movie, especially with the third act, Chiron directly homaging him in his newly developed image. Uh, Ali just takes what could have been such a cliche-ridden character and turns him into a real human being. I mean, this is a, a drug dealer who, for all intents and purposes, becomes sort of a father figure to Chiron. Uh, he's very complex and emotionally deep, and and Ali really roots the film from that very first scene. We see that there's more to this character than what you would ordinarily assume from a character like this in a similar film, film dealing with this kind of uh, you know urban environment as far as you know the the drug drug trade and and you know dealing with the streets and um, for us in Chiron he becomes a sort of an icon of masculinity and and uh, sort of a cross section between the masculinity as well as the, how how that can be sort of tempered with uh, with sensitivity and there are allusions to experiences that the Juan has had that sort of mirror Chiron's own struggle. They both have uh, mommy issues that they reference, and um, similar similar troubled upbringings on the streets. And um, you can tell that Juan really, really tries to do whatever he can to keep Chiron on the high road going forward. I mean, of course, his his impact is limited, and then sort of uh, hits a wall when. Chiron comes to realize that Juan is not only a drug dealer, but is likely involved in providing his own mom with drugs, and sort of the the pieces that they fit, that those all fit together. Uh, it's really mired in in shades of gray that uh, that essentially mark the end of of any any shred of innocence that Chiron had is is pretty much obliterated by the end of that storyline when he realizes. That even his friends, even the people that he cares about, they're all sort of tainted by the world around them. Um, and Ali's performance here is, is so nicely supported by Janelle Monet, who plays his girlfriend Teresa and who co-stars with him in another Best Picture nominee, Hidden Figures. Um, she'd never acted before this film, and um, I think she brings such a, a natural uh, compassion to the screen that uh, that nicely complements what Mahershala Ali is doing. So as far as his performance, and of course he won the Oscar for this, so there's a lot of standout scenes here. Uh, I mean, several come to mind. The, just the famous swimming scene of, uh, with him and Chiron, where he's telling him that, you know, you need to figure out, nobody can tell you who you are, you need to figure it out for yourself. Again, as quoted by the line up top, you can tell why I selected that. Uh, as the uh, sort of intro to the to this episode, because it does in, in in Moonlight, Black Boys Look Blue is not only the title of the unproduced play that the film is based on, but that that scene carries so much. It, it essentially it bottles together a lot of the themes and uh, emotions that are 
inherent in pretty much the entire story. Uh, you have Ali's discovery of Chiron in the in the crack house there, and that interaction that takes place immediately after at the diner, as well as his confrontation with Chiron's mom, um, in which he realizes that he is the one providing her with the drugs that are is that are directly responsible for essentially stealing Chiron's childhood out from under him, um, and the sense of guilt that he has really weighs on on Juan in that scene and then in the subsequent scene which is probably my personal favorite that final interaction with Chiron in the first uh, segment in which he asks uh, Chiron asks him what a faggot is and uh, you know he has to sort of break that down for him as well as as sort of admit to his own uh, complicity in uh, in his mom's drug addiction and you, you get so much from Ali's face from his body language in that scene without him really even having to say very much and it just goes to show you the understated nature of pretty much all the performances in here um, probably the the biggest performance in this film however uh, not biggest as in necessarily most impactful but biggest as in the one that has the the most uh, the most um, outwardly emotional and uh, intense screen time is actually Naomi Harris, which is the final final uh, actor we're going to mention here. Uh, of course, you've seen her in the Bond movies recently. She's in the Pirates of the Caribbean movies, etc., and a bunch of other stuff. Very, a very talented actress. So she appears here as Chiron's drug-addicted mother, Paula. Um, she's actually the only actor to appear in, appear in all three segments and rightfully leaves a lasting impression as such, as basically... Um, Chiron's only really consistent parental figure from birth going forward into his mid-twenties as we see him uh, in the third segment. And um, she earned an Oscar nomination for this role, which she lost to Viola Davis. And, you know, you can sort of understand why, since Viola Davis essentially had a lead role in there. And it's a little... that's all. There's a whole political reason for behind that. But Naomi Harris, the nomination was definitely well-deserved. And especially since she filmed the role in just three days and uh, really gives her all to this to this performance. I mean, she finds complexity in the film, uh, in the role that she has in the film, rather. Similar to Ali, and it's something that could easily just be written off as old hat in lesser hands. And the concept of a drug-addicted drug parent is nothing new to the screen, and she finds a sliver in humanity within Paula. Little moments, like when her sad tone when she realizes that he doesn't love her anymore and her attempts to make it up to Chiron when he visits visits her at the rehab center in the third segment. In fact, that latter one is probably the most powerful scene for me and one of the most emotional moments uh, as a viewer that I've experienced watching the film a couple times. And, um, you know, any individual sense of identity begins with their parents and considering all the problems that Paula faces in this film during, you know, raising, during her time as a single mother raising Chiron, it's pretty clear why her son develops such a difficulty finding himself and figuring out who he is and, and uh, how to proceed, you know, with his adult life. Um, really, really standout cast across the board. And as much as Mahershala Ali deserved that Oscar, it's, it's a pity that some of the other performances didn't get a little more love. Um, that being said, best picture, I think, kind of does uh, does serve as a testament to how strong the ensemble is. So moving on to the production, there are so many elements in this film that easily stand out, um, aside from the acting and the screenplay that I've already mentioned. James Laxton's immersive Oscar-nominated cinematography really puts us in the POV of Chiron going, you know, from the first scene. Um, actually, Chiron's not in the first scene. It really, it's kind of a tracking shot that follows Juan and, and uh, introduces us to the neighborhood first before we actually see Chiron. But moments later, I mean, running down the street with Chiron as he's being chased by uh, by some kids that are making fun of him or, or in the back seat when Juan picks him up and takes him to his house and, and just pretty much every step of the way, we have these like, we get these really close-up shots of Chiron and of Kevin and of the different characters in his life sort of putting us right there in the moment with him at the table with uh, with Teresa and Juan and it's really um, it's really focusing on making the film feel like an, an intimate exercise 
in uh, character-driven storytelling. So, th- I mean, that's the foundation for a lot of the uh, a lot of the tone of the film. I feel like that's laid out from the screenplay is really is really um, multiplied exponentially by by uh, Laxton cinematography and the way the film is shot. Moreover, the symbolism inherent through the storyline and from the use of nicknames. I mean, you have Little and Black as two of the nicknames that sort of are bookending the segments in the film, with Chiron being this middle segment, Little and Black, the first and third, respectively. But then you have Juan, who, who uh, again, relating to... See the quote up top? Relating to the quote up top, who is sort of given the nickname Blue by some old lady in, back in Cuba as a kid himself. And uh, there's, there's a lot of focus on nicknames and identity throughout the symbolism of it, as well as the consistent presence of water and food as symbols for connection and love and the affection that Chiron craves. Um, teenage Chiron goes to the beach to sort of clear his head and get away from, from his mom, from his school, from all his personal life. And sort of have some time to himself. So it's sort of it's 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 this uh, this freedom and this like relaxation that he gets when he visits the beach, as well as you know the swimming scene with Juan, and how that that relates to the the affection, the closeness he feels in that moment, and um, the the torment that he feels in his dreams, which is another consistent theme throughout the film, as he's kind of haunted by his past by his emotions, by his desires that are unfulfilled, having dreams about um, Kevin um, kind of looking at him lovingly and and uh, Kevin, teenage Kevin, having sex with a girl in school and, and sort of being haunted by the things out there that he's not able to express. Um, but <laughs> so I meant to go back to this. So water as a symbol of connection and love and, when and then food as another symbol of that connection and love that he doesn't receive from home. You see him at home basically taking care of himself whereas Juan, Teresa and Kevin in all three respective segments of the film provide him with a meal. They, they, they nurture him in the way that his mom never really does in the film. She even says at one point, oh he can take care of himself. He's, he's good that way. And then she sort of takes that for granted and never really gets to, never really opts to be a parent to him. Um, which is why so, many, so much of the relationships that he forges throughout the film are sort of punctuated by the nourishment and freedom that he gets from the water, from the ocean, from food, from being taken care of in the way that his mom never does. So it makes a lot of sense that Kevin, Juan, and Teresa would sort of be his surrogate family over the years in the way that in the way that he uh, takes sort of contrast with the antagonistic relationship he gets from his mom, and which is again, like I said, with Harris being the only star, uh, the only actor to carry throughout those three films, sort of that antagonistic relationship that sort of uh, haunts him throughout his life growing up. Um, the water, the water symbol in particular, is really reflected in the sound design of the film. I mean, we see moments where Chiron sort of feels vulnerable or connected, and you hear the sound of waves in the background. Not only that, the the glorious score by Nicholas Bertel, again, we played one of the most recognizable tracks, The Middle of the World, earlier on the episode here, um, but the melodies that he puts together, the intricate themes for both for Little Chiron and Black in the different storylines, uh, or the different you know periods of his life, are, are so evocative and really just as introspective and... Um, moving as as Chiron's as Chiron's journey itself is and and sort of force you to look into this character in the way that he's trying to look into himself and sort of and put together all the pieces within himself um, there's just something elemental about the way the film is shot the nature of Miami uh, as far as the beach and the trees and how that how that clashes with the streets and the the seedier areas in which um, you know, in which Chiron lives, and uh, you could tell that the film is shot on location, and the juxtaposition between the cruelty of Chiron's home life and the beauty around him is is really captured on screen by Jenkins and Laxton and the team that they put together. So, as far as the verdict, if you can't tell by now, this is 
uh, the more I see this film, and like I said, I, I'm working my way through the commentary, so I'm on my third viewing of the film, technically. Um, this is an extraordinary piece of work that Jenkins put together, and even though it may not wow you at first, if you're one of those people who, like me, saw it and were like, okay, yeah, it's a good movie, I, I, don't, I don't know if Best Picture necessarily is really something that, um, you know, hit me that way. Uh, I, I encourage you to, to give it another shot. Maybe watch it again. Don't watch it in pieces. Don't watch it, you know, while you're on surfing, you know, surfing the net and just kind of cleaning the house or whatever. Put it on and focus on it and, and really uh, hone in on the story that's trying to be told and, and the intricate ways in which it's being carried out. Um, because it did take me some time to reflect and play in my head uh, exactly what I had seen and what it had, what it means as far as, you know, and I've heard a lot of criticisms, uh, positive criticisms, critical reception, um, from a lot of uh, journalists and, and, uh, you know, film, uh, film people, cinephiles that I respect really broke it down and helped me to appreciate the film better. And rewatching it, it's, it's really easy to see why Jenkins is being recognized as an up-and-coming visionary. He has such a meticulous attention to every aspect of this film, and it really bears rewatching just for the, the very powerful portrait that uh, that Moonlight forces viewers to empathize with and uh, a perspective that may be foreign to them. It really helps reflect on that personal strug- struggle that so many people face and who many, have, many viewers probably have faced themselves you know, not necessarily being black or being gay or growing up in, in a neighborhood like Chiron and Kevin do. But, you know, that inner turmoil is a universal thing. Trying to figure out who you are and where you fit in the world. And uh, coming to terms with that, with that sense of self. I mean, I feel like, personally, I feel like that's something that has really only sort of, really only started to gel within the last few years of my life. And I'm almost 34 so, I, I mean, I feel like that's, that's something that it takes a long time for a lot of people to really kind of, uh, to really realize and, and make peace within themselves of, well, fuck the world, this is who I am, I don't really give a shit who you want me to be, I'm going to be who I feel like I am and who makes me happy, and I'm going to live the life the way I want to. If you have a problem with that, well, there's the door. And, and um, the film really chronicles Chiron's journey to try and reach that point. Where, you know, even the way the film ends, he still hasn't 100% gotten there, but but there, it feels like a corner has turned. It feels like there's hope for him going forward. And the film has such a message of inclusion and diversity and being true to yourself in the face of that adversity that it really feels like something very uh, far more important and timely now than even the filmmakers intended. And, and I won't go into, you know, all the political reasons why I feel like, I feel like this film is so important. But uh, I do feel that the Best Picture win was very well, very well uh, deserved. I feel like the wins for screenplay and supporting actor also were were um, underscore some of the the best elements of the film. And I do I do look forward to what Jenkins will be doing next in his career. Uh, having recently caught up with Medicine for Melancholy, he does have a very distinct voice. And now that this film has really caused the industry and a lot of cinephiles like myself to really take notice of the talent that this guy has. I'm very excited to see what he can do next. And uh, if Moonlight is a testament to what he has in store, he could have easily just as many, he could easily have just just as strong of a follow-up in store for us whenever his next film does come out. And I don't think there, I don't think, I haven't really looked into this, but I don't believe he has anything like in the works right now. Uh, you know, set to hit theaters in the next couple years or anything, but hopefully he won't take another eight eight years between film the way he did between Medicine for Melancholy and Moonlight. But uh, so Moonlight, I'm gonna go again, go ahead and give it a 4.5 out of five, only because that five out of five is really hard for me to to dole out. Um, I do feel like the film is a little closer to that than it was when I first saw it, so it might be like a 4.6, 4.75, something like that. But it's not. It's hard for me to sign off be like five. Uh, it, over over time, I feel like films sort of earn that that rating for me. And Moonlight could very well do that. But as of now, I'll stick with four point five out of five. It's, it's a real, it's a real uh, gem. And I, I I do think 
that those of you who haven't seen it uh, and are open-minded enough to give it a shot, knowing that it is slower than your typical Hollywood blockbuster, and that it is uh, it is conveying a perspective that probably is very dissimilar from your own. Um, if, if you're cool with that, I definitely recommend checking it out. It's it's an interesting film on a lot of levels, and I think it's one that will probably be studied uh, from a filmmaking perspective going forward. So that concludes my discussion of Moonlight. I didn't realize this was going to be almost as long as my discussion of Logan, but it just goes to show you that I had a lot to say about this one. Um, if you want to see the links to my Best of 2016 post on the site uh, in which Moonlight is listed there, as well as La La Land, um, links to my podcast episode that I did about La La Land, as well as the one I did about Logan, I'll have those in the show notes. So for the next episode, and I'm really trying to keep this as a weekly thing, um, I may finally break down and discuss Game of Thrones after years of delay. I finally, Kai and I have finally watched season one. Uh, it's just one of those things that a lot of times when it comes to TV shows, I try and avoid getting sucked into every every television phenomenon out there. I still haven't really given The Walking Dead a fair chance, for example. The zombies are just not my thing. But uh, I did finally get into Game of Thrones just as the, as the series is winding down. So perhaps in the next episode, I'll, I'll go into my reaction to season one uh, and uh, let you guys know what I thought of that. But for now, you can find more podcasts, reviews, videos, and other movie-related goodies at CrookedTable.com. Follow me on Twitter, at CrookedTable. You can also find us on Facebook. And uh, you know, let me know what you think of this format. Um, it's a lot of fun for me to do such a, dive, a deep dive into films, especially ones that I really enjoy. It'll be interesting to see when I do one for a film that I didn't really enjoy, but still have a lot to say uh, um, about. So I'm sure that will happen in the near future. But uh, until then, I'm really enjoying sort of expressing my love for some of the some of the best films that I've seen in the past few months. And uh, Logan and Moonlight definitely qualify. So, um, you know, I hope you've been enjoying this. Let me know on Twitter at Crooked Table or send me an email, robert at crookedtable.com. Let me know what you think and what you want to hear me talk about next. But until next time, I hope you guys have a great week. That's it for the Crooked Table Podcast. I've been Rob, and, uh, well, roll credits. This has been a production of CrookedTable.com. All rights reserved. That's the yard of a little KED.